As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. My name is Ben Sternke. I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm here with Matt Tebby. I'm here, and I have a helper hey. today, hey. helping us do this hey. intro. All right. Introduce Hello. yourself, helper. Hello. <coughs> What's your name? The voice... Celeste. That's Celeste. Celeste is our new co-host for the podcast. Celeste. Yep. Celeste uh, do you have anything a, else to say? Do you have yeah. anything else you want to tell us, Celeste? Like what? Well, we're uh, introducing <laughs> a podcast today, so what's going on in your world? Well, I'm doing school, and I wrote a essay about Rosa Parks and Nelson Mandel. Mandela. Uh, Mandela. Yeah, she did write uh, about their leadership and their courage, and what else? Believing in their self. And, and they believed in themselves. themselves. Yeah, Very she nice. she uh, came. I was I was doing a gravity leadership quote this morning, and she brought mm-hmm. it into me and handed it to mm-hmm. me, and then I read it. This essay. So she's busy at work. And, Busy uh, at work. She's doing school. She's writing about. She's learning and writing about Rosa Parks and Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And their leadership. This is great. Mm. Yeah. 
And well, I can't figure out a, a smooth way to, to slide right into speaking of Nelson Mandela, but no, that doesn't really work. Rosa Parks. Speaking of, you spell her name with letters. Courage? You know who else's name you spell with letters? <laughs> Mako, Mako Nagasawa. Nagasawa. <laughs> there you go. And uh, Mako joins us today, and he's written a book, his first book. Although it's incredible, this is his first book because he's written hundreds he's written of thousands so much of words. Stuff. This guy, yeah, on his uh, Anas, uh, Anastasia, Anastasia Center. Center website, yeah. but he wrote a book about abortion. Yep. <laughs> if if that's the, an obscure topic uh, that nobody's <laughs> ever heard of, no, it's it's really it's really good. It's really helpful, um, and uh, it's a lot of a lot of what sort of we're learning about, like the history of why why we even care about abortion. Uh, was fascinating. Yeah, how abortion then, became uh, something for Christians to care about in America. Yeah, yeah, and why? And, yeah. and that, yeah, it wasn't uh, self-evident. I, I think I grew up thinking that it was just self-evident. Well, of course, this is important, and it is important. It's an important issue. But yeah. once you understand the history of how it became such a hugely important issue, especially yes. in the evangelical and Catholic world, um, yeah, it just raises a lot of questions. Yeah, and so uh, Mako really helpfully leads us through those questions and and talks about how. In a lot of ways, we might be shooting ourselves in the foot in the way that we approach this, uh, because a lot of the assumptions we have about abortion are are actually wrong. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this is a, this is a great quick uh, interview with Mako. It's really good. And and just to give you a peek behind the curtain here, uh, mm-hmm. we actually recorded this interview twice. Mm. The first time we tried That's to record, right. the first That's time right. we tried to record it, we had massive. Uh, technological snafus, problems. And mm-hmm. we spent like 30 or 40 minutes having this chat and it did not go well. And so then... Uh, <laughs> we had to do it again. We had to do it again. Yeah. And I'm really glad we did. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yep. So anyway, uh, I, th- I think that's it. Um, besides announcing, we're always starting a new uh, Gravity Leadership Academy cohorts. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in getting into one, we're starting one uh, real soon. You're, you've got one uh, that, well, yeah, by the I, time this releases, it might be full. It's, so, it's, uh, you may have one spot left. We'll see. Yeah. Because we'll I've got some people who uh, live all over the world and time yeah, zones yeah. are lining up. So we'll yeah. figure out how to get it started. Okay. If you're interested, just email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com mm-hmm. and we'll uh, hook you up with Gino. He'll, yep. he'll know uh, what to do. So, all right. That sound means. <laughs> that it's time to get the podcast started. Yeah. All right, here we go. Thanks, man. All right, Mako Nagasawa, welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Christy. Yes, we're all here uh, to chat with Mako uh, today. Mako, you are um, one of uh, a few people, one of a few guests who have been on our podcast. This is maybe the third time. I didn't check this before we started, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe the third time. You, and you, you joined us before to talk about power. Right. And then I think you talked about race. And yeah. today we're going to talk about abortion. All the easy topics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, yes. we, we, we give you the softballs, uh, basically. Basically, just listen to all the podcasts with Mako, and you'll know how to structure your VBS this summer. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Thank you for um, having me. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, Mako, just in case uh, people are just tuning in, maybe they saw abortion in the title and this is the first Gravity Leadership uh, podcast episode they've ever listened to, just um, maybe mm-hmm. do a brief introduction um, to you and to what you get up to uh, in a day. Sure. So um, um, my name is Mako Nagasawa. I live in Boston with my wife and, and two biological kids and foster daughter. I am the director of a, um, a Christian education and curriculum writing uh, organization called the Anastasis Center. And you could find that online. We, we do lots of um, uh, evangelism tools or in Bible studies and, and Christian ethics, uh, like study and action curriculum that's really rooted in uh, some early church insights. And those specific insights are Christian restorative justice and healing atonement. Yeah, there, I mean... That that's another topic. Uh, we d- we get into that in some of the other episodes. So if you guys maybe we'll link to those in the show notes yes. if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about healing, atonement, and Christian restorative justice. Um, right. I th- this is probably why we have you on the like. Just hearing those words, I'm like, yes, let's talk about that. <laughs> We're not here to talk about that. Uh, this is probably why we keep having you on. Hold yourself um, together. You resonate. Ben. I know. I know. I'm getting too excited. I'm going off in all kinds of directions here. Um. Mako, uh, but today we want to talk about uh, this a book you've recently written. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, the book is called the book is on abortion, and it's called "Abortion Policy and Christian so- Social Ethics in the United States." Um, so it's a bit of a more of an academic book. I'm, uh, you know, I'm thinking, but I, I, we wanted to have you on to to talk about this issue because when it comes to abortion, um, I think a lot of our listeners probably grew up in environments similar to my environment growing up, which was, I was, I was in the pro-life movement. You know, we did, um, uh, what were the, what were the March, the March for life, you know, things like that. Um, and, uh, it was a very clear black and white moral issue, uh, for the church that, uh, the unborn, like this is a, this is perhaps the premier sort of moral evil in the United States. And we'd have to do everything we can to stop, uh, abortions from happening and uh, from this evil uh, to kind of come, and you're you're uh, into you know into the daily life of uh, our lives of Americans as Americans, um, and your book seeks to <laughs> complexify the issue a bit, uh, essentially. Um, right. And so you 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 write to say, hey, I think we've actually misplaced our priorities, those of us in the pro life movement, and we have oversimplified something that is actually a, a more complex issue than we have made it out to be. Right. Um, so before we get into those complexifications, I wondered, like, why did you, <laughs> why did you want to write this book? Like, why complexify an issue that feels like a fairly simple Black and moral white. issue? Yeah. Right. Why, why complexify this in the first place? What? Why did you find it uh, important to write this book? Um. Well, I think first and foremost, I, I, I mean, or I care about the issue as I think many people do, and and yet. Mm-hmm. The more I read about some of the history of the pro-life movement, the more I came to wonder, why is the um, policy platform uh, the way it is today? You know, so, and, and I, I really felt like this is starting to become self-defeating, uh, mm. you know, because some, the, the way that economic conservatism is tied into the pro-life movement and, and kind of an anti-communism platform is tied into the pro-life movement, uh, it, it makes, it, it makes it actually, 
the abortion rate will be driven up higher because of the the ways that those kind of policy agendas are put together. So, for mm-hmm. instance, in the 1930s, the, it was the Catholics who anchored the pro-life movement, but they were New Deal Democrats, and and they were very much for uh, anti-poverty measures, uh, strong, yeah. you know, small business focus, labor focus, and and why is that? Because during the Great Depression, they saw the abortion rate skyrocket. And mm. and so in, to them, poverty causes abortion. But, mm. you know, later, decades later, when, uh, and we could talk about why this happened, but uh, when the pro-life movement was adopted within the Republican Party, it was wedded to uh, kind of Reagan's anti-communist um, platform, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the story was told, well, why do abortions happen? Why do people get abortions? And the, the story was told in such a way that it was, uh, the answer was because of um, people aren't Christian or Christian enough, right? And so it's atheism that causes abortion, which is was not true. Already. I mean, right. historically, it's never been true. And and so the, um, and, and but that fit into the Cold War rhetoric. And, and that yeah. fit into this tendency to, portray people like Dr. Martin Luther King as communist or Marxist. And, mm. and, and we were never sure, uh, you know, when you say someone is communist, do you mean that they're atheist or you mean that they're actually for, um, you know, government role in, in providing social welfare and, and regulation and right. uh, public mm-hmm. investment and infrastructure. Yeah. But that was very clever because it meant both things. Um, and, and so, you know, you can mean whatever you want. It can, and for your political purposes, yeah. right? And and so you know, when you look at abortion statistics, it's you know, women between the ages of eighteen to twenty nine who have the most abortions, it, or or and women hmm. at or below the poverty line have three times the number of abortions as as women who are not in the poverty category. So hmm. you know, there poverty causes abortions still, but the there is something yeah. on the Republican side of, of thinking about this that says, no, poverty should be the scare tactic. It's the threat and it's the consequence for having kids before you're ready and having sex before you're ready. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they, they sort of reversed, they, they moralized poverty um, and abortion kind of in the same way to say like poverty follows from abortion and abortion follows from uh, you, you don't, you just don't believe the right things yet, or you're not Christian enough right. yet. And so the answer is to, to be more Christian. They made it into a, uh, kind of a, a black and white moral issue. Right. When in fact, previously it used to be, uh, sort of a connected to the dots to poverty to say Ex- poverty. Exactly. People who are in poverty will tend to have more abortions because they don't feel like they can take care of this kid. They don't have enough money. Right. They don't, yeah. Right. Yeah. Either, either that or, or just women are more vulnerable when they're in poverty. And so they're, you know, they may feel like I, I need to be with my boyfriend, uh, for my physical Mm -hmm. safety, for my wages. Uh, right. I mean, on on average, uh, women are paid lower than men at just kind of in general. So yeah, 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 absolutely. So I hear you, I hear you saying you wrote it because you care about about this issue. Um, and that you notice that a lot of the way that the policy sort of uh, recommendations were all kind of clumped together, it was becoming self-defeating, um, right. almost like 
like the phrase that comes to mind is an empty signifier where right. it was like this, like how I vote uh, on abortion is sort of this stamp that I show the world or, or show myself even to be like, I'm on, I'm doing the right thing here by voting in this way or by advocating for this policy. When in fact, if you actually look at the results of those policies, it's doing the opposite of what we purport to be saying it's going to be doing, which is mm-hmm. reducing abortions. Yes. It's actually raising them. Yes, yeah. it is. And, and mm. you know, economics is a, is a big part of it. Contraception is the other part of it. So, so mm. you know, we heard a lot about repeal and replace during the Trump administration uh, of, of the ACA. And the ACA helpfully gave women contraception, um, which is another cost to women in their lives, right? Like men typically right. don't pay for contraception. Uh, right. and, and so to take that away uh, would, especially IUDs and, and other uh, high effective contraception, would would drive the abortion rate up. And yet uh, the abortion rate came down the most during Obama's eight years, primarily right. because of the ACA and contraceptive care. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so writing this book because you care about this and, and complexifying the issue uh, because you actually do care about whether <laughs> more abortion, you know what I mean? Like right. we do care about like what, how do we actually get fewer abortions to happen? Right. And, and you have to look at, you have to complexify the issue uh, from how it's been sort of handed to us by uh, the evangelical, uh, at least the evangelical church today. Absolutely. Actually get at that. Ben, yeah. it goes back though to, and I'm wondering if Mako can speak to this because you, you go into like the Hebrew words that are used in scripture, right? Can mm-hmm. you speak yep. a little bit to that for those who are kind of listening to say, well, what does the Bible say about this? Cause I thought it was clear. And now you're kind of saying maybe it's not as clear as I thought. Right. Uh, the, the most important biblical text is Exodus 21 verses 22 to 25. And what we know about that situ- that text is it's an example case law of like, you know, when this happens, do this. Uh, and so when this, the, the, when this happens is when two men are fighting and a woman gets between them, presumably because she's the wife of one of the guys and she's coming to, you know, help her husband. Deuteronomy 25 also describes that scenario uh, from a mm-hmm. different angle. But the, the idea is she is struck and um, and that's what we know like for sure at what we what we're not sure about although there, there's more clarity than I'm currently saying but the uh, what we're not sure about is okay she has this miscarriage where something happens with the baby with the unborn child and then what do we do and uh, the the Greek Septuagint version of the of the Exodus passage, uh, which is important, right? Because the, the Greek Septuagint is the most quoted version of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Um, mm-hmm. It's preferred. It, it seems to have won the approval of the, the Jewish synagogue leadership, including the Sanhedrin, right? So, so this is an important manuscript family. What it says is, well, you look at whether the fetus is imperfectly formed or perfectly formed. And what they mean by that is what's the age of the fetus, uh, mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, uh, what do those terms mean? Well, we don't even, we're not totally sure, um, but Jewish commentary like Philo and, and others uh, 
received that and said, all right, well, let's, let's do something. Let's say something about that. What, what are those mm -hmm. markers? And it, imperfectly formed fetus would be a fine. So the offender uh, pays a fine. The uh, a perfectly formed fetus, which presumably would be older, uh, uh, would would be uh, kind of the lex talionis principle, life for life, eye for eye, and, and that kind of thing. And which I've addressed on another podcast of of ours <laughs> as yes. that's a proportionate payment about like what what it means to lose a life or what it means yeah. to. Um, yeah. uh, lose a functioning eye, you know, or something like that. But the yeah. fact that there are different um, punishments means that there is a, an early stage to the pregnancy where the fetus does not count as a fully human person. Yeah, and the punishment is is less because of that. Exactly. So no matter where they, so the Bible doesn't necessarily say kind of where that line is, but just the fact that there were two different consequences for, you know, uh, one kind of fetus and another kind shows us that this has not been as clear, maybe scripturally or in, ter in terms of how uh, we have interpreted scripture in church history. It hasn't been as clear as maybe uh, we think. Right. Hey, everyone. This episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast is brought to you in part by Respero. Respero seeks to bring healing to hurting people through life-changing conversations. Respero offers the opportunity to be trained as a lay counselor, enabling you to provide help to people in your communities. If you're interested in becoming a counselor or wondering if it might be a good fit, check out Respero's Understanding People course, the first step to joining Respero's counseling team. Founder Joe Bishop leads every cohort of counselors in training and continues to, prov to provide oversight. Once the courses are completed, Respero also offers an array of personal development courses and lessons covering topics ranging from anger and anxiety to codependency and spiritual abuse, something we've talked about quite often on this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how you relate to yourself and others, consider taking the Understanding Yourself course. You can find Respero on social media at Respero Restoring Hope or online at Respero.org. That's R-E-S-P-E-R-O dot org. We'll hope you'll join them in their mission of bringing hope to a hurting and chaotic world. We don't let anyone sponsor our podcast, Ben. But nope. Yeah, you can't just come in here and give us money. No. That's not how this works. No way. No way. We've turned away thousands, but not Respero. <laughs> Their yeah. vision and mission align very closely with what we're doing. We encourage you to yeah. check it out. Yeah, yeah, especially uh, especially now. I'm I'm glad that they had contacted us now. I mean, we we were just talking in the intro. Um, we were just talking recently about how it, mm -hmm. just how crazy and chaotic uh, this this past year has been with the yep. pandemic and with everything else going on. So mental health is uh, high on everybody's radar. I think uh, Respero can offer some help uh, in that regard. And also the training, the training as a lay counselor is intriguing to me as well yeah. um, in terms of just being able to, you know, not just understand yourself a bit better, but be able to have better conversations with others and help others. Yep. You want to become more like Jesus, understand yourself and understand people better. Check, Check it out. out. R-E-S-P-E-R-O dot org. Respero. Thanks for sponsoring this episode of the podcast, guys.
This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you, so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission, and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. I'm not sure how much in your book you go into this, but this is the same with uh, early Christianity too. Like what I was, what I was told was um, early church fathers, early Christians were always against abortion, and and they point to the didache of like setting out babies to be exposed and terms like that. But but what sure. I came to realize is exactly what you're talking about that there was a much deeper uh, lexicon of talking about what kind of human life are we talking about. When it comes to an embryo, a fetus, a partially formed fetus, a fully formed fetus, and then a, a, a baby that's been born. And, and what, I, what I discovered, right. to my shock, utter shock, was that um, throughout the church history, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine, even Aquinas, they're able to delineate between a uh, not fully formed human person in the womb and a more fully formed human person in the womb. And that seemed to that that there seemed to be some kind of moral obligation that changed based upon where the life was in that in that range, and and in our current discussion about abortion, right. that's completely missing and completely lacking. Do I have that right? Absolutely, and and I'll throw in another complication, which is the Hebrew Masoretic text, which you know most Protestants use, and and, and so on. Uh, that most interpreters of that, uh, it, it says something different than the, the Greek Septuagint. It says basically uh, personhood begins at birth. Yeah. The idea is, you know, just as w- when the baby breathes in air, yeah. it's, it's like Adam, right. you know, breathing in the breath of God. And, and, and now there are some, like starting with John Calvin and some English interpreters who, who say, well, but maybe that's actually an, early delivery that is a healthy baby and, and things like that, I argue, and, and most will say, no, that, that's not how the Jewish community received mm-hmm. that. Um, you can tell by the Targums, uh, which were companion guides to synagogue mm-hmm. readings um, of the Hebrew Masoretic and the Greek Septuagint, that either they said imperfectly formed versus perfectly formed, so you're looking at the age of the fetus, or they're just saying birth constitutes personhood. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so going to your point, Matt, yeah, the early Christians weren't totally sure what to do there mm-hmm. because this is the single most important text, right? Like you could look at Psalm 139 and I, you know, he, he made me in my mother's womb, but that's still too general. It's indeterminate. Mm-hmm. Like here is a, spe- in Exodus, it's a specific um, ethical situation where they're they're discerning what is the status of fetal life, mm-hmm. and 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 we don't exactly know. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just impossible to tell between these two manuscripts. And so yeah, the early Christians 
you know, you, you have to look at the, the whole collection of uh, statements that they make about the subject. Um, and, and also what manuscript are, are they wrestling with? Uh, they basically say, you know, I mean, scripture itself raises this question. Clearly we're supposed to care about this, but, um, we don't, we don't know even what formed or unformed mean like the, in the more demanding, uh, of the manuscripts. So, so the West looked at the, the Latin West, which became the Roman Catholic tradition, Augustine, Aquinas, as you said, they, they basically, <laughs> they say, we'll go with Aristotle because Aristotle's the leading scientist on this. Oh, so he had studied miscarriages and said, you know, the baby, the, the, the fetus is formed uh, somewhere between 40 and 90 days of life. And that became this marker that Catholics were then comfortable saying ensoulment happens when, when maybe halfway through the pregnancy, when the mother feels the baby kick in the mm. womb. That is what we believe about mm. ensoulment. And it's related to the physical development of the fetus, not completely identical with it, but, you know, there mm. it is. And and it's related to the, the Septuagint version of Exodus 21, mm. even though the Catholics went with the Vulgate, which was based on the Hebrew Masoretic. It's just incredible. Mm. And, but then the Greek, the Greek Orthodox and the, Sir well, the, so then there's the Greek Orthodox and then there's the Syrian East. Um, wow. and, and they have different positions about it. Uh, the Syrian East says, basically, let's just use the Septuagint, um, and, and we'll adopt that distinction. Um, Basil of Caesarea representing now the Eastern Orthodox position, he and others are trained doctors. So they took the Hippocratic hmm. oath. Hippocrates did not want to, um, perform abortions. So, so they just adopt hmm. that and they say, yeah, sure. Um, we don't know about fetal life, but we have this practice about abortion that we want to honor. And they're reputable Greek hmm. doctors doing mm. this. So, so they even drew from different scientific sources. Yeah. yeah so all, all of this to say then, this isn't a way of like not caring about abortion, right? This isn't a way right. of saying, right. well, who cares then, you know, like, uh, let the abortions flow, you know, I mean, not to be too crass about it. Like this isn't, this isn't a way of doing that. This is a way of properly caring no. about this issue and saying like, what is, what, what do we actually know about this? Yes. And how have right. we actually been shooting ourselves in the foot by oversimplifying <laughs> this issue? Right. right. Marco, maybe as a pivot between scripture and church tradition and how we find ourselves where we are now, which earlier you said, we end up supporting policies that increase abortions, mm -hmm. um, and we we tell ourselves that we're pro-life when really we're supporting things that that uh, enable or um, uh, don't reduce abortions. I, I want to read just this paragraph from an article about the rise of the religious yep. right, and I would love for you then to riff on it, if that's okay. Um, sure. Today, evangelicals make up the backbone of the pro-life movement, but that hasn't always been so. Both before and for several years after Roe versus Wade, evangelicals were overwhelmingly indifferent to the subject of abortion, which they considered a, quote, Catholic issue. In 1968, right. for instance, a symposium sponsored by the Christian Medical Society and Christianity Today, the flagship magazine of evangelicalism, refused to characterize abortion as sinful, citing, quote, individual health, 
family welfare, and social responsibility as justifications for ending a pregnancy. In 1971, delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention in St. Louis, Missouri, passed a resolution encouraging, quote, Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. The convention, hardly a readout of liberal values, reaffirmed that position in 1974, one year after Roe, and again in 1976. So I I just want to—I hold that out to say this— non-black and white, we need to have a real ethical conversation about what abortion is and what it isn't. This existed within our Christian tradition until the mid-70s. Christianity Today, Southern Baptists, I mean, these aren't aren't, uh, mainline organizations. These are sort of the bread and butter of evangelicalism. Until the mid-70s, we're able to talk publicly and openly about how abortion is complicated, and there maybe are some allowances, et cetera, et cetera. What has happened, Mako? Like, wh- why are we now, less than 50 years later, almost unable to even put a podcast out about it because we're so circumspect that we're going to, you know, ruin everything? Right, right. And and by the way, the emotional and mental health of the mother is the most generous criteria for allowing exception. Yes, it's not uh, even like you know, early or if the mother's going to die. This is like basically like if, if the mom you know, can't support this child or if the mom has mental health issues or right, right. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and um, the, in the literature about before Roe v. Wade, how did, what did women say in order to procure abortions? It, the, the, I mean, they could always say, this is just really hard. I didn't expect to have, you know, and, mm. and I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think they were lying, but, you know, those were the, uh, the reasons that doctors found acceptable. Right. <clears throat> so, the the um, what changed was in 1979 um, there was a <clears throat> uh, a movement called the Moral Majority. Uh, I, I think it was founded by Jerry Falwell Sr. with the help of two, uh, especially um, these two men, Republican strategists who were Catholics. Uh, named Richard Vigari and Paul Weirich. And they figured out that uh, demographically, they wanted to realign the Republican Party and um, away from the Northern industrialists and and towards the, you know, who were moderate on economic issues, uh, towards the, um, well, the Southern white supremacists. So the Dixiecrats that, who were leaving the Democratic Party uh, because of LBJ's Great Society hmm. and the civil rights legislation, they were leaving the Republican, uh, the Democratic Party and, and looking for the Republican Party to be their home. And this was kind of the main thing that uh, drew white evangelicals into national politics. They had already really been in state-level politics because they were, they were busy resisting Brown v. Board. They had set hmm. up segregation academies mm-hmm. and so on. And and then Jimmy Carter said, we're going to bring an end to that by making your segregated academies, uh, your, your private Christian white schools, 
um, not tax exempt because you're not following federal mm-hmm. law. And that just drove them nuts. So Bob Jones, <clears throat> I think, is one of and, those and because, places, right? Bob Jones University? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And I want to point out that this is Christian versus Christian in public debate, as far as debate, right? Because Jimmy Carter is yeah. self-described as born an again. Evan, born yeah. again evangelical. Yeah. Um, so this is and, – and he's a Georgian, right? right. So it, this is a Southerner versus a Southerner on, on mm-hmm. these things. And, and that's important because that's a pattern in U.S. history that we, we don't often reckon with, that the major policy disagreements are Christian versus Christian. Hmm. You know, slavery versus abolition or uh, theocracy versus a principled pluralism going all the way back to John Winthrop versus Roger Williams. The same is true for Roe v. Wade. Hmm. Roe v. Wade uh, looked at all of the state level laws and it was a mess. Because uh, some states, like in the North, had in the late 1800s uh, become more strict on the surface, even though they were largely um, uh, driven by doctors who wanted to rule out the quacks, who gave poisons to women, um, right? So the doctors actually still performed abortions in their own clinics. They just didn't want women to be poisoned. Mm. They also... uh, wanted to monopolize the field. I mean, for, for good reasons, uh, they were the legitimate doctors. Um, but also in the North, there were, there were the anti-Catholic sentiment that with the, um, the, the know nothing party that they were the anti-immigrants. And so they looked at all these Catholics coming in from Italy, Ireland, and Germany and saying, we're going to be outnumbered. There was fear of race suicide, not in terms of pure whiteness, but in terms of Protestant Anglo-Saxon whiteness. They were like, we're, we're going to be replaced by these cat, cat, white Catholics. Uh, and so let's stop doing abortions, even though that never really worked. No one stopped doing abortions. Um, but that was, that was in the North. The South uh, continued to hold to quickening after a civil war, the Civil War and after Reconstruction. Why? Because it served anti-Blackness. Because white men raped Black women with impunity and they didn't. They didn't want to have those children anymore uh, because you couldn't enslave them. So they're not economic commodities. Uh, and then, if white women had mixed race children or or had gotten involved with a man who was not white, then the family would uh, want her to abort the ch- you know the fetus of of that union. Mm. And so, so it's fascinating because the pro life movement today portrays the situation as if there was just. Oh, we, we learned from science and we, we changed state laws right. in response to uh, what we knew from science that Aristotle was, you know, that uh, the best we could do at the time, but he was wrong. And, yeah. and so we're going to go with, you know, fertilization and conception as the start of personhood. Mm. No, actually, that's not how it worked out. Abortion policy has always been weaponized for some other hmm. goal, either anti-immigrant uh, uh, politics in the North or anti-black politics in the South. Mm. And, and so the, the Supreme Court looks at this and says, it's a mess. So, and besides that, the 14th Amendment seems to take higher priority because we got to equalize treatment on some level uh, of, of both mothers, fetuses, and, mm. and so on, and, and the healthcare community, uh, like what can they expect? 
Uh, and so they look back to 1787. What was the understanding of abortion at the time of the writing of the Constitution? Well, it was quickening, and abortion was permitted until quickening. And quickening also is this weird evidence, evidentiary hurdle, right? Because it depends on the mother saying, yeah, I felt the baby yes. kick, which, you know, how often is that going to be? So the, the, the law itself was more designed to protect women from men who wanted to force them to get abortions. Wow. So, so yeah. the, <clears throat> it, it's just fascinating. So Roe v. Wade is a return to a, 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 some respect for quickening. Mm. And that, and that was a Christian position <laughs> for, for the for the the Christian West for over a millennium and a half. Yes, Mako. Right, Mako. So, can I, so can that, I just can yeah. I, I want to put it? You are giving us like a master class here. And mm. I remember when I first heard <laughs> all this, it I literally did not believe it. I could not believe that. I mean, what you said really clearly was. Uh, and this is a matter of public record. You can Google the Southern Strategy and yeah. read the Wikipedia page right. on it, where the, per, the the head of the Republican National Convention owns that this was an explicit strategy, that there were a bunch of disenfranchised, disillusioned white su supremacists in the South who were mad at the Democratic Party because of uh, the Great Society stuff, Lyndon, Lyndon Baines Johnson, the Civil Rights Act and all that, and were looking to keep the federal government out of their institutions, uh, out of schools, right, and other places, uh, swimming pools, et cetera. Right. And, uh, and right. wanted uh, – and, and there was this – millions of people who could be galvanized, uh, but, but – because of where America was in the 70s, you couldn't just say, hey, we'll, we'll hate black people too. Vote for us. So there right. had to be these, um, what, what, what do you want to call them? Like signifiers or code words, right? That would give, right. that gave the, that let everybody know, we're going to let you be as racist as you want to be. <laughs> um, and, and you can trust us to protect your, for instance, states' rights. Or right. we, we will we are the limited federal government party, mm -hmm. which which meant we'll keep the federal government out of local policies that enable you to, for instance, uh, continue to disallow uh, interracial dating. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Sure. Um, and 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 so what you're saying, Mako, is that abortion became the a rallying cry. To, br to bring those people into one solidified partisan camp, whereas they had been in various camps or various places otherwise. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now this, honestly, I, I'd never heard this. Chris, did you ever hear this stuff growing up? No. In fact, it's interesting to me that like now it is like the, the voting policy thing that I mean, people are one policy mm -hmm. voters right and it's on this this yeah. issue right um and so no i think for our listeners <laughs> me, um i'm like wait a minute this is bananas mm -hmm. right i i mean i just got like a crash history course um that opened my eyes mm -hmm. wide and i i wondering mako if you can just talk a little bit to to our listener who's sitting there going wait a minute this is all new to me i do care 
about abortion, but help my imagination grow to what is Mm. pro-life? Like, give me a bigger vision of not just abortion, but what does it look like to love people and be pro-life as a whole? Hmm. That that's that is a great uh, that's the great question, and it, it's a challenge. But in general, I I would refer to how um, the New Deal Catholics, de- the Catholic Democrats, thought about it. it. It's kind of the seamless garment of life, right? From from womb to tomb type of care, <laughs> right? So when it, when a baby's born, we we care about nutrition, we care about uh, physical health, we care about early education, we care about services, um, you know, to that child and to the family. And if something um, is going wrong, or needs to be needs to be addressed in terms of mental health, I mean, let's talk about autism or, mm-hmm. or things like that, and then strong public education. And then, uh, you know, how can we contain the cost of living? Uh, how do we put regulations on banks so that they don't drive us more and more into debt? I mean, all of these things were part of a, a consistent pro-life platform. Mm. But what happened in the 80s was that when the pro-life cause became absorbed by the Republicans, it got wedded to a, a criminal justice orientation rather than a social welfare orientation. Hmm. So it's like, who can we punish? Hmm. Right. And yes. so... Um, it, you know, I mean, when, uh, when when Trump said, I think it was back in 2016 when he was running, like, the, uh, the, the woman should be punished. Um, I mean, everyone gasped because technically conservatives are supposed to say, no, 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 we, she's the secondary victim. The doctor is the main culprit. Mm-hmm. Like the, um, let, let's, let's take away a doctor's license if he or she performs an abortion. So, but but then there there are actually organizations like Personhood USA or um, lobbyist groups that are mostly Christian who who do want to punish the mother for getting an abortion, and uh, and we we have instances like Baby Shui, uh and I, I talk about specific cases in the book of women who were prosecuted because they they killed a fetus alongside their suicide attempts. Oh gosh. Wow. And then they, they go right. to prison for murder. So, I mean the, so there is a retributive mood or a, a mood uh, among some to, to only view abortion through the lens of um, a, a criminal justice mindset yeah. where, you know, we, we want to only protect the baby until the unborn, until it's born. And then we want to stop welfare pay, you know, like we want to, we want to dismantle regulation because then it becomes about individual freedom and choice. And um, again, it's the pro-life causes wedded to an economic conservatism. But I explain in the book why many reasons why that's self-defeating and including all kinds of other chemicals from uh, big companies big chemical companies where chemicals are landing in the wombs of mothers Mm -hmm. against her will, against her wishes. And it's causing spina bifida. It's causing autism. And, and yet we expect parents of these kids to, to have to deal with these conditions without support. Yeah. That's crazy. (laughs) 
Yeah. So I, I hear you saying, number one, I mean, if you do want to know uh, more of the history, read the book. Yeah. So order, order Mako's yeah. book uh, and read it. We'll put a link in the show notes uh, to, to your book. Um, but, but basically like shifting from viewing this through the lens of crime and punishment, you know, let's make it illegal and let's punish people who do it. And shifting right. into a social welfare, social welfare mindset, which is more practically oriented to say, mm. how can we get less abortions to happen? And how can we care for, right. and, and part of that would be, let's make women feel like it's possible to have a baby. Like, let's, let's right. help them feel like that is, an, that is something that they could do, right? Mm. Let's give them support. Let's give them enough economic, you know, like, and so beginning to think through all of those things means uh, I hear you saying that it's not just voting for the right candidate every four years, right? For president, right. The, the actual, that the president has very little real life effect on kind of uh, the day-to-day happenings in the, in the world of uh, actual abortions and that kind of a thing. Um, and so there's a lot more that can be done. That's right. On the local That's level, right. there's a lot more that can be done, uh, on the state level, uh, there's a lot more that can be done just in, in our relationships. Like there's a lot that can be done um, if we can shift from that crime and punishment mentality into a social welfare mentality. Right. And I just want to add that in the early church, the, the, the bishops in around, starting around the fourth century, when the empire started to become Christian, I mean, depending on mm-hmm. how you think about that, but, but the bishops would mm-hmm. say, you know, Sure, we don't like infanticide or abortion, but if the parents are in poverty, we understand, and we're not going to yeah. hold them to church discipline um, yeah. b- because poverty poverty is something that uh, uh, kind of trumped the other factors. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so sure, I mean, there are some diehards right who look at early church history and say, "Look at how the yeah. the Christians stood up against abortion," and that, that's generally true and you know it sparked a revolution in how we think about children and children as people so so sure that's really important but yet look at also how they looked at the family as a unit how they looked at relational Mm -hmm. ethics and relational notions of justice um it it wasn't they did not look at it as an individualistic issue or as a criminal justice problem Mm. yeah yeah that's really that's really helpful mako um, it is. Just be be willing to let your let your views on this be complexified a little bit, for the sake of truth, and for the sake of um, yeah, for the sake of life. Yeah, yeah. And I'll right. just say what appealed to me about this book, Mako, is that I I know of dozens of Christians who feel constrained by their conscience to vote yeah. for a single issue because that's yeah. how they were raised and they were taught, mm-hmm. and I know of. Uh, and I know there must be thousands or millions of those people. And then also there's hundreds and hundreds of pastors who pastor people who feel constrained by their conscience. And this this perhaps aligned, uh, this was maybe okay uh, 15 years ago, uh, you know, just to speak candidly, like uh, for people who voted for George H. Bush, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole bunch of like things that were outwardly offensive about that man. And there was maybe not as many awarenesses or awakenings about, maybe they weren't as conflicted, but I, I know so many people who talked about holding their nose and voting for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And they did that because they felt like they they had to make a stand for the unborn and for life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, right. I, 
I, I think what I want to say unequivocally is um, your book helps us detangle the myth of the single issue voting. It helps us detangle yes. the myth of a single Christian position on this issue. And it helps us if we really want to reduce the number of unborn uh, lives that are lost, it helps us untangle how do yep. we actually do that? Uh, right. Am, am I, is that safe to say that? <laughs> Absol- absolutely. Absolutely. And and it makes us care about all children in a, in a totally different way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to, well, as long as my children, you know, and, and then how other people treat their children, I'm going to judge that. So the, yeah, and, and it's much more holistic. Um, you know, when we look at abortion stats today and, and ask questions like, okay, when 14% of all abortions are, are procured by married women, there's something about the conservative hmm. assumption that just being right. married That'll prevent it. will solve yeah. the issue of abortion. Uh, or, or we look at, okay, I mean, um, the Midwest where, I know you guys are there, where it, when jobs leave this country, men are less likely to propose and get married. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that is sure to impact um, uh, abortion rates. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I mean, in order to care about this, we have to care about everything. But <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's true that, you know, it's all interconnected. And, and that if you, if you care about this, then you, you ought to care about everything. Yeah. Yes. Well, amen to that. Um, Mako, it's been great to have you on the podcast again. Um, the book is called Abortion Policy and Christian Social Ethics in the United States. We will put a link to that in the show notes um, and a link to your Anastasis Center. Do you pronounce it Anastasis or Anastasis? Anastasis. Anastasis. I, I was noticing the, <laughs> uh, the little uh, accent mark over that second A. But anyway, the Anastasis Center, uh, we'll put a link to that. Mako, where else can people find you? you on the social medias? You exist out there in the, yes. in the world? So, yeah. Yes. So there's a, I have two Facebook pages. People hmm. can find me at the, the one that is dedicated to discussion of this book. Oh, there's one. Okay. And that'll be obvious. Uh, yeah. And, and Twitter and Instagram. So okay. just, I, I look forward to engaging. Awesome. With you. Well, it was great to have you and uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with us, uh, walking us through this very complex issue. Thank you so much for having me. So appreciate you all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 